Welcome to Discover Ag, where every week we discover what's new in the world of agriculture. We're your hosts, Natalie Kovorik, a rancher from Nebraska. And Tara Vanerdiesen, a dairy farmer from New Mexico. And together we bring you our professional farming opinions on a variety of trending topics in the ag and food space. And we are back today with episode 81 of Discover Ag. And it is brought to you by Case IH. To the men and women at Case IH, farming is a way of life, a life they live every day on millions of acres across North America. Get to know the farmers who work at Case IH and see how they bring that perspective into everything Case IH does. Visit BuiltByFarmers.com to see their stories and even share your own. Built by Farmers, Case IH, a proud sponsor of the Discover Ag Podcast. So do you remember a few episodes back when we were talking about the new Starbucks oil-infused drink? I don't know if you've seen this yet, but it is making a splash in the headlines right now. Yeah, I saw it coming back around. (laughs) Yeah, not in a good way either. What did you see? That people are venting about their morning vente. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that <laughs> little pun. Thanks for including that. It's a l- unintended consequence of a laxative. Like Starbucks didn't see that one coming. Wow. That is how we're kicking off this episode, you guys. <laughs> Discover that is how. You know what though? I feel like Starbucks has already had that problem. Like not to get too graphic, but like their bathrooms have been an issue that you can't like I don't know that there, there, there's a lot happening in the Starbucks bathrooms. So adding this oil is probably a terrible idea. I have no idea what you're talking about, but I do not want to know. So. <laughs> you don't want to know. You don't. I promise I've seen news stories on it. You don't want to know. <laughs> in a sharp left turn, um, how are you doing personally? I know, I mean, it's obviously been a pretty heavy week given the fire in Texas for the dairy industry. Yeah, it's been such a weird week because it doesn't like affect me personally at all. Right. It's just that like, this has been a really heavy week for the dairy industry. And then obviously like proximity to the fire in Texas on the dairy farm, you know, they're not far from us. We're right over the border in Texas or in New Mexico. They're right over the border in Texas. And so it does feel like it's been a week of kind of, I don't know, like nonstop kind of like bombardment with like news or kind of the lack thereof of news. Um, Yeah. I mean, it all like started last week when the fire happened Monday night. Daniel and I were actually out of town on the girls' spring break, and my mom texts me with the news. And then by the next morning, you know, reports were coming in, tons of misinformation was coming in, and it just started kind of like consuming our day. And then from there, like you've seen it too online. It's like what everyone is talking about. I get DMs. I got texts yesterday about it. I was like, why are people texting me about this? Um, And so I don't know. I don't know if we want to like just get into it. I feel like that's already we're kind of starting there. We are, which you're right. Normally we do kind of have more. We have more uh, coffee laxative talk at the beginning (laughs) (laughs) than diving into our, our, you know, news articles. But I think we're here. Uh, I think it's an important issue. People are tuning in to hear us talk about it. So, yeah, let's just cut to the chase. Let's dive into the, the articles. You okay with that? Yeah, that sounds good. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, Before we do that, though, we are going to still thank um, and feature one of our uh, Discover sponsors. I have their cup if you're watching on YouTube. It is Culver's, um, and we're going to talk about their Scoops of Thanks Day. 
What is Scoops of Thanks Day? I am so glad you guys hypothetically asked me that. Scoops of Thanks Day is part of Gulver's initiative to support our nation's farmers and ranchers and give back to the future of ag through ag education. So how it works on May 4th, you, yes, you, dear listener, will visit your local Culver's and donate $1 to ag education and in return, you get a scoop of their fresh frozen custard. I'm so sad that you have a cup. I gave you that idea. And I don't have a Culver's close enough to get a cup. And you don't, look at her just sipping away, just drinking her Culver's. Um, so as far as their frozen custards, they will have traditional choices to choose from as well as their flavor of the day, the How Now Brown Cow. If you guys remember a couple of weeks ago, I read the ingredients list and it was like drooling by the end. It's so good. Uh, but the best part besides the delicious custard is that 100% of the dollars stay local and is either donated to your local FFA chapter. And if you don't have one of those, then it goes to another local ag organization. So this is truly such a good cause to donate to. Please, please mark your calendars for May 4th. I feel like it's an easy date to remember. There's always like the May the 4th be with you jokes. So May 4th, get out, go to Culver's, support this great, great initiative and learn more by visiting the link in our show notes. May the 4th be with you. I, every time you read it, that's all I can think <laughs> about. And I'm like, that's so good marketing. Like everyone should be able to remember that. That is the last thing I think about when I see May 4th. I know I'm not even a Star Wars fan and I... <laughs> Like, that's all I've never think seen it either. Yeah. We went on the ride in Disneyland when we were together and we're like, we've never seen any of these, but we'll go on the ride. We'll I know. What if it was like, what's that? And we were like, we don't really know. <laughs> it's love long know. for the ride. <laughs> May the fourth be with you, Guinevere. <laughs> yeah. All right. Diving into our first article titled The Worst Farm Fire in Decades Kills 18,000 Cows in West Texas. A fire erupted on a family farm in West Texas this week, killing about 18,000 cows that were worth millions of dollars and injured one worker. The blaze happened Monday at South Fork Dairy near Dimmit, Texas. And take it away, New Mexico milkmaid. Actually, wait a second. Don't take it away. Because before we jump into this discussion, (laughs) um, I actually think you should just give a little bit of background on yourself. I know we don't normally do that. We're doing lots of things this episode we don't normally do. But given, again, I think this article, context about your background would be very helpful. So if you want to share maybe that, and then we can move into discussion. Yeah, I think you're right, because I kind of alluded to things at the beginning of this. But um, so my background, I'm a fifth generation dairy farmer, born and raised in New Mexico my entire life on a dairy farm. I went away you know, left the dairy farm, um, went away to college and got my degree in environmental science. While I was at college, I started dating Daniel, my husband, and ultimately ended up graduating, getting my degree and moving back to his family farm in New Mexico, his family dairy farm, which was just down the road from my, my parents' farm. Um, and I right away started working as a dairy environmental consultant for dairies throughout New Mexico, throughout the Southwest, as well as other just environmental initiatives throughout the country, um, as well as off of dairies, which I think might be kind of relative relevant as we get into this. Um, but yeah, our proximity is pretty close to this dairy, obviously within the dairy industry. While I said it doesn't affect me personally, it's, it's just hitting really close to home for, I think everyone in our area and, and just the greater dairy industry as a whole. So thank you. Yeah. So I guess diving into it now, I want to start by saying this is a horrible tragedy. I know there is so many conspiracies, rumors. We'll get into all of those things later. But like, 
let's not forget, like at the heart of this, there is a family dairy farm behind this that like in a matter of an hour, their entire lives changed. The entire future of their farm changed. Their, one of their employees was air vac to Lubbock, Texas in critical condition. She is now stable um, and it seems like doing better from the news reports. Uh, but like, I think that's what I want us to remember as we talk through all of this. And then I know that both you and I have been getting DMs from people in the town, as well as I've talked with people who live there about how this is affecting the entire community and what they're dealing with as, you know, they have the onslaught of national news attention in their, in their small rural town. So I don't know. I think that's kind of where I'm at right now. Yeah. Speaking of my escapades on Twitter, my, my growing Twitter uh, time I spend on there, I have been having to do a lot of, not having to, I'm choosing to obviously, do a lot of uh, you know back and forth in conversations, reminding exactly what you said, that there are is a family behind this operation. You know, Unfortunately, a lot of that's coming from outside the, the industry, but I have had seen people that are within the industry that have been choosing to make it about like traditional versus non-traditional and kind of point the finger. I'm like, now is not the time. Like there is absolutely a family behind this operation. This is absolutely a tragedy. And I think that needs to come first and foremost. So I'm glad you brought that up and started there. I'm also glad you kind of mentioned the community and the text because shout out to the Dimmit community. I do think that is one thing that as I've been reading about this has been kind of interesting and we'll definitely dive into this more. But part of, I mean, you've already alluded to that there's a lot of conspiracies and just kind of spiraling out of control. And I think part of that is because the owner has essentially gone radio silent. He is not making any statements in the news. So none of the articles are quoting him or anything, but the articles are quoting community members because a lot of the community members have stepped up, I feel like on his behalf, because they know he isn't speaking. And so they've been doing a lot of defending of his honor. And and as an ag community, I think that's really just heartwarming and, you know, a good reminder. I just love to see that that community is like speaking for him, you know, making positive comments about their operation about them individually and also about like what they meant to the community. Yeah. You talked about that. You've been responding on Twitter. We are in like a weird position. Like I feel so weird talking about this, but this is what we do. Like we have chosen to like, we cover news topics and this is one of them. Um, And we're going to be covering it. Like we always do. I hope that I can bring a little bit of perspective being that I am, you know, kind of like local to the area, but ultimately, you know, we're not speaking on behalf of anyone. We're not sharing anything where we studied, researched the facts and giving our professional opinions as we always do. And so we're just going to be covering kind of like the investigation and what's going on. So I think I'll kick start off with like the facts of the fire, if you're good with that. Yeah, I think that sounds good considering there are hardly any facts going around right now. Let's start with the facts. Yeah, so maybe that's the first one is this is an ongoing investigation. So a lot of it has to be kept private until the investigation is complete. You know, there is... um, like insurance, liability. I think if I had to guess, that's part of the reason like the farmer is not talking yet is because you legally can't until like things are determined and actual facts are put out there. But here is kind of what we know. Um, The first I think that's worth mentioning is that the dairy, the style of dairy is a cross ventilation barn, which is common for that area. He's like just north of us. So we're open lot, but it 
just north of us, the weather kind of changes. They have a little more extreme weather. And so they have cross ventilation barns. And there's actually a ton of benefits to the cross ventilation barns. It's climate controlled. So you can go in there in the middle of the summer when it's hot or in the middle of the winter when it's freezing and the temperature stays almost consistent throughout the entire year. It is a state of the art barn, like brand new barn has all of the highest standards, safety, like all the things you would think of to like be a great barn. Yeah, I saw Dan, Iowa Dairy Farmer, release a video on TikTok that I thought did a really good job addressing kind of what you're just talking about. But he was out in his barn and he was talking about kind of like you were just referencing, talking about different things. He was talking about, you know, the head stalls. And I thought he did a really good job explaining how they were mounted and how there was one entrance and one exit and just all these things to consider when it comes to the type of barn. I can't remember if he said his was similar or not, but I did find it very fascinating about the way he was kind of explaining about, again, there's a lot of focus on this barn. And so it was very helpful to watch his video and hear him explain and talk about it. Yeah, I actually DM Dan just asking about the specifics of his barn and being able to compare. And so his is naturally vented and this was a cross ventilation barn. So there's definitely differences. But if you want a visual representation like Iowa Dairy Farmers video, I agree with you. It did a really good job. So one thing to consider with this dairy that was kind of maybe unique to this dairy is essentially the entire dairy farm is under one roof. So where the cows eat and where they chew their cud and where they spend the majority of their day just like walking around their pen is under a roof. And then they would walk to a parlor where they would be milked, which is under a roof, which is pretty common. And then the commodity area is also under one roof. Do you know what a commodity area is? Because you're making a weird <laughs> My brows are furrowed. That is the weird thing. They are. <laughs> um, no, I don't have any idea what a commodity area is. So it'd be good to explain that. I just can't believe you don't know what that is. No, I'm sorry. I thought that was like a universal ag term. I feel like I'm disappointing That's a conversation you for another day. And all the listeners tuning in. <laughs> but for the other yeah. two people that don't know what it is, you're welcome for asking so that now you guys know. <laughs> so that is essentially like, I don't know, like our pantry for our cows. Like it's where you have all of their food and it's where, so all of the hay. Like, so if you've ever seen a hay fire or something like that, you, you know, kind of like it's, like it goes really fast when it goes up in flames. So the food essentially is under the roof too. They're able to, um, there's a lot of efficiencies there. It's, it can be really great. So anyway, that's a little bit about that. So what has been confirmed is it was a vacuum truck that caught on fire. It's called a honey vac. And what it does is it collects the manure inside the barn and hauls it outside the barn to be composted and spread on fields. That is what caught on fire. So if you think about this at all, you have a vehicle catching on fire inside of a barn that and the vehicle is filled with fuel, uh, manure, lots of things. So once it caught on fire, the insulation inside the barn caught on fire and the insulation was flame resistant like most insulation is, but it is not flame like retardant for everything like it does catch on fire. And so once that insulation caught on fire, it was able to spread throughout the entire barn really quickly is the way I understand it. Two things came to mind when you were talking about that. One was the honey vac because I read an article where I don't remember who it was that misquoted it, but they called it a honey badger. And so the article was talking about how <laughs> it can be called a honey oh, okay. badger. Too. A honey badger caught on fire. But the second thing, the most important thing that came to mind was you were talking about how quickly the fire spread once it caught the insulation. 
And I had kind of picked up on that a couple of the different articles that it was just a very rapid timeline, right? Which makes sense if this was like a slow burning fire that would not have had the consequences it did. So obviously, time was like a major component in part of the problem. And I just kept thinking when I was reading that how much of a blessing it was that there was only one employee harmed then. Yeah, I mean, typically on dairies, there's one employee per 100 cows. So you're talking about like just under 200 employees, like really a blessing that everyone got out. Um, I'm glad you brought that up, though, because I mentioned it being an ongoing investigation. And that is part of it, too. Like I mentioned the liability and the insurance, like there's people are going to be looking for someone to blame. And I think that's an important piece of this, like saying how like the farmer wouldn't come out and give a statement. Like, I think there's a lot of restraints on this. And unfortunately, it's making a bigger splash in the news, I think, because no one's talking because it it's so it feels like people aren't telling you the truth because they're not telling you anything when in reality they probably can't. But I really think it's adding like I hate to say like no pun intended, like fuel to the fire for this that the media is running with their like crazy accusations. which I don't know if you maybe want to just dive into that now. Maybe we could have the conspiracy talk because I have been seeing quite a bit of them in the comment section. Yeah, I can start with that. Um, so again, I mentioned like I can't find any truthy explosion. Like there is I've seen fake videos that are straight up just videos from other fires that are pieced in with pieces of this fire. And like you can tell the barn changes, the silos around it change, the greenery changes. Like I've seen videos where they have overlaid like sounds of cows in distress over the fire, which is not like they have gone crazy with editing and making fake videos. I have no idea. I saw one yesterday that got texted to me and I was like, I, that can't be real. And it was like an explosion. And once we like dived into it, sure enough, like some of it had been green screened. Like it was not real. The lengths some people will go to is insane. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. It really is. So what were you going? What Where were you headed with well, this? Well, there's like two or three, I guess I want to talk about the first one, big one I have been seeing is the conspiracy that the government is doing this, that it is, you know, controlling the food supply. No matter the platform, there is this narrative that this is was not an accident, that it was not a tragedy, that was, you know, the government trying to control our food supply. A lot of them are referencing like, oh, you know, chicken barns going up and now milk barns and, you know, the whole control the food, control the people. And I guess I want to come out and put a stop to that because it w- it is not the government. They are not involved. This is was not planned. This, as we opened our podcast with, very importantly, said this is a tragedy. This is not, you know, control the food, control the people. Yeah, I saw a lot of misrepresentation about like the numbers. And so I found this very helpful. So Castro County, where the, the dairy was located, is less than 5% of Texas's total milk supply. And this is just one dairy in that county. And even those numbers were misrepresented. I saw something that was like this dairy accounts for, you know, whatever percentage of Castro counties. No, I crunched the numbers and I was like, cows don't produce that much milk. Like that this is physically impossible. So even those numbers, um, they have been skewed big time. So this is a very small percentage of all of Texas's milk supply, I guess, is the point of my story. That's actually my second point I wanted to bring up is that the prices and then like the next thing after government was controlling things, I see that the comment that like, oh, great, milk is going to be increasing now or meat is going to be increasing now. 1000 is obviously not a small number, but in the grand scheme of things and the percentage of like what you just stated, that county is milking that number is actually a drop in the bucket when it comes to the beef and dairy industry, that beef and 
milk prices should not be affected from this fire. And then maybe we want to keep rolling with uh, the number then, because I just kind of talked about how 18,000 is a drop in the bucket for the dairy industry. Um, But I feel like that's kind of the other thing I've been seeing. And we alluded to this earlier, but it was like factory farming and activists, I feel like is kind of the next big, I don't know, I don't want to call it a conspiracy theory, but definitely like a soapbox or a narrative that's being twisted about this, obviously, event. Yeah, that part of it is going crazy. I mean, 18,000 dairy milking cows is not a small dairy. Like, that's a big dairy. But I also want to mention, like we continue saying, there's a family. This is a family dairy. 97% of all dairy farms in the United States are family owned and operated. Like size aside, this is a family dairy farm. And I think it's like big is not bad. We have that mentality that big is bad. And I know it's really hard for people to wrap their mind around that 18,000 number. Like I get it. Like that's a really big number. It feels crazy. But... I think there is some context for this area. Like Eastern New Mexico, our average herd size in Eastern New Mexico, I think is about 3,000 dairy cows per milking herd. West Texas, I would guess, is a little larger, maybe like 4,000, 5,000 per milking herd. So yes, 18,000 is still larger than that, but it's like not unheard of or not that crazy. And it doesn't mean it's bad. Like it there's a lot to unpack there. No, far. I mean, that is something you and I will stand on continually a soapbox is that farm size does not equate to quality of life. It does not equate to animal husbandry. It doesn't equate to anything really for that matter. Smaller, you know, big is not bad. Small is not better. It's really comes down to like practices management, which is individualized and has nothing to do with the size of the operation. Yeah, I think the big modern, whatever you want to call it, dairies are not bad. Like this could have happened on a 100 cow dairy. Would it have made the headlines? No, because, or maybe it would have, but I doubt it would make the headlines because the activists are really running with this narrative. Like this is a factory farm. It was caused because of factory farming. No, that's not true. This was a horrible accident and nothing more. And these activists are going, you know, the narrative they're running with are going to have real consequences for dairies. I mean, one initiative that they want is that all barns have to add sprinkler systems in case of fire. And you know who this is going to be hardest on? Small dairies. That's who this is going to affect and be really hard on. And there's also like other issues. Like you can't just have like sprinklers everywhere out in the open if you have colder temperatures. Uh, You can't, you know, water conservation is also really important for a lot of people. It's not that simple to just have, you know, water flowing everywhere across the dairy. So I mean, we could go on and on about this forever, but there it's very complicated. It's not as simple as the activists like to make it seem. So I think the last thing to kind of wrap this up that I want to touch on, I think pretty soon, the activists are now going to be talking about how they're getting rid of the animals. And so, you know, landfills burning, composting and burying are the typical options. But I don't know. Do you know what they'll end up doing with it being close to 20,000 cows? Or do you know anything about this? I think it was all new for me. <laughs> it's like you're laughing at me and I'm I don't know why. you. <laughs> I know. I'm, la- I'm laughing at you. Not like, haha, it's funny. Carcasses. I'm laughing like, haha, that's ironic. Um, Yeah, I know exactly what will hap- happen with them because I was actually a part of the effort that put together those protocols and distributed them to dairy farms because like jokes like not fun for us but like we had a tragic accident in 2016 with a massive blizzard that wiped out tons of dairy and beef cattle in our area and we had to put together these protocols um in order to remove the carcasses from the blizzard so i feel like that's like such like 
Megan, you're bumming me out about like our just, area right now. I feel now. like I just kicked you while you guys were down. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I kind of feel that way. So actually all dairies now, and I would guess feedlots too, have a list of protocols in place for mass like carcass disposal. In this case, it's one dairy. Uh, so I would guess that like Texas Department of whatever, you know, environmental quality is going to work really closely with them on making sure like they have a plan in place. So I think my biggest takeaway is reminding people this was an accident. It was a horrible, horrendous accident. You know, all the legal things aside, like, it, I don't I don't want to say it was no one's fault, but like, it was just an accident. This was an unbelievably sad accident. Yep. Our heart and thoughts and prayers go out to the Dimmick community and the family, um, like you said. All right. Moving into our next article, um, we're going to jump over to the controversial, uh, you know, to buy organic or not. All right, diving into our second article titled Just Eat the Non-Organic Blueberries. Here's why you should disregard the Dirty Dozen. Every year, the Environmental Working Group, the EWG, releases its list of the Dirty Dozen, a group of 12 fruits and vegetables it claims to be contaminated with pesticides. It recommends that if you would like to eat produce off the Dirty Dozen list, you should choose organic. This year, several new foods made an appearance on the list, including blueberries number 11 and green beans number 12. Although this consumer advocacy group believes it's helping consumers make better choices, the reality is it isn't. This one really reminds me of the conversation about grass-fed versus grain-fed that we always have, that it's like, it's better to consume beef than to not consume beef. And it's like similar with this, like, it's better to consume blueberries and or fruits and vegetables, whatever you're choosing, than to be like, oh, well, I can't afford organic, so that's it, I'm not getting anything. Like, it just, I feel like there's a lot of parallels between those two conversations. Like, the nutrient, nutrient densities are still the same, and it's still safe. Yes, I agree. I'm actually nervous to talk about this. I don't know why. I was nervous to talk about grass-fed and grain or grass-finished and grain-finished though too. I just feel like organic and the same thing for grass-fed, grain-finished. I do feel like, and GMOs, it's another one. I feel like it is a topic that people kind of have their predetermined minds made up about. And so no matter what you bring to the conversation, they still kind of leave thinking the same thing. So I don't know why we picked this topic, but we... (laughs) But we did. We're here to talk about it. I do think nutrition is kind of generally accepted as not a difference. Mm-hmm. I believe why a lot of people shop the organic or follow the dirty dozen is because of the glyphosate, like the safety issue. And you just stated that it is safe across the board as well, that there is no difference between the two. And I, playing devil's advocate, I do think that's where someone would step in and be like, no, 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 no hold up, there is quite a difference between conventional and organic. Yeah. So I guess on the flip side of that, I think a few things, um, 99.8% of all fruits and vegetables test below the EPA standards for residue, 25% tested with no residue at all. And then I think my last point would be like organic uses pesticides too, but it has to be approved pesticides. And I was always under the impression that it had to be naturally sourced and it doesn't. It can be man-made. This was like the quote that it just has to be on the national list of allowed and prohibited substances from the USDA. And so I think that is where there's an issue is that people think organic means something that it doesn't. I would agree. I do think people think organic comes with a reassurance that maybe necessarily isn't there. 
part of the degree I got was like risk assessment. And that is something they don't do. There's no risk assessment at all from the dirty dozen list. There is no like looking at the toxicology of it. Like, you know, you said like it's like a pass or fail kind of thing. It's not actually looking at it. And one of the quotes I love that to basically sum it up is you'd have to eat a shit ton of whatever fruit it was in order for it to be harmful. Like it's physically impossible. I think it said uh, for a woman of like average size and build, she'd have to eat 20,000 blueberries a day for like a week for it to be harmful. Like nobody's eating 20,000 blueberries a day. The EWG website literally says, because I spent time on there and it's kind of fear mongering. I I mean, I will admit, I go to it and I watch it. It talks a lot about, uses the word toxic. It targets children. I feel like it preys on the mother's emotions. Like I read it and I'm kind of a little scared. And then I, I remember the food science babe and I like snap out of it. But the website literally says the shopper's guide does not incorporate risk assessment into the calculations. All pesticides are weighted equally and we do not factor in the levels deemed acceptable by the EPA. One thing I want to add is the EWG's shopper guide has a negative impact, the most impact on the purchasing for lower income families. And I think that's where I have the real issue here. It goes back to my first point. Choosing blueberries, I think, is better than choosing no blueberries at all. And so if you're going, if people, lower income shoppers are like, well, I can't buy organic, so I'm not going to buy anything at all. And they instead buy an overly processed food that they feel safer about. That's an issue. Glyphosate is one of the most heavily studied chemicals in history. There was a longitudinal epidemiological study on 445,000, excuse me, pesticide applicators who had used Roundup and glyphosate over many years. And from that study, it showed no association between glyphosate and specifically NHL they looked at, which is non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So one thing about the glyphosate, my gosh, say it for me. Now I can't say it. Glyphosate. (laughs) Glyphosate. Thank you. Um, I do. I think people are afraid of what they don't know, which we talk about. I've seen posts online from like, you know, kind of do it yourselfers that are like, well, I mix vinegar with this and this and this. And that is what I use as my pesticide. And I'm like, well, by the time you can combine all of those ingredients, you have like a highly more toxic substance than traditional pesticides. I think people, but it's because it's ingredients they know in their household, they feel safer about it. And it's it's a perceived safety versus a perceived risk. Like it goes back to that risk assessment. And then the last thing I'll say is if you want to eliminate, you know, residue from your fruits and vegetables, the best way to do that is to wash them with tap water. Just wash off your fruits and vegetables and that will remove or eliminate a lot of the residues. My favorite quote, which is from Liz, the homegrown Um, podcast. She says, the closer you are to your food source, the less fear you have around it. And for me, I really believe that's what organic is. Like farmers are not eating something else than what they are growing because they are not afraid of the food system. We are fully immersed in our food system and we do not have fear around it. We do not have concerns around it. We're consuming what we are producing, whether that is a traditional consumer producing, consuming a traditional food, an organic producer, maybe consuming both or just organic or whatever it is. There's also traditional farmers that are you know, choosing to eat organic, like whatever it is, the choice at the end of the day is still that we are consuming something in our food system that we grew, we produced and that we are not afraid of. Yeah. I mean, we're a conventional dairy operation. I consume basic conventional pasteurized milk because I know at my core, I feel good about how it's produced. Mm -hmm. All right. Moving into our third and final article this week. But before we do that, we do want to thank our sponsor, Good Ranchers. As you know, this is a new meat company to Tara and I that we have been ordering over the last um, almost, I would say, into the months now and are excited to you know, have them as a sponsor of the, the show. 
Good Ranchers has been changing the way people buy meat since 2018. They're an American meat company working to connect American farmers and American families. What we love about Good Ranchers is that 100% of their meat is born, raised, and harvested in the USA. So you know your purchase supports American farmers. Their selection includes USDA prime beef, chicken, and seafood. And I so far have personally ordered both the chicken and the beef and give them both five stars. I'm actually cooking Good Ranchers tomorrow night. And I feel like this is my reminder. If you need to put out frozen beef, do it now. I'm going to like, when we get off this, I'm going to go set it out. I promise Daniel steaks tomorrow and I have not set it out. So that's my reminder. Go set out your Good Ranchers. Um, But yeah, we have uh, both cooked a few things. One of the really cool things about Good Ranchers is your price is locked in for the life of your subscription. So you can literally pay the same price for meat you love a year or two from now. Another favorite thing about Good Ranchers is that they donate 10 meals to families in need for every box purchase. They have donated over 900,000 meals. Yes, just under 1 million meals to families in need since they started. You can find them at goodranchers.com and be sure to use the code discover for a discount. The other thing we'll note is they are running their sale through the end of April that when you order, you get free bacon for the year, I believe. So if you're going to order, now is the time I would put in that order, get it in, get that bacon, um, get some good ranchers in your freezer. All right. Our third and final news piece this week, titled Texas Oyster Farms Collect Their First Harvest. In 2019, Texas became one of the last coastal states to allow oyster farming. Now the first farms have had their first harvests. Okay. This was something I could not find. So maybe you had better luck than me. Why haven't, why didn't they allow oyster farming prior to 2019? Okay. So from what I gathered, one, they didn't need to essentially the natural, um, Gosh, we are so like fish out of water in this for terminology, but the natural, the wild oysters. Yeah. Well, the habitat of them, they were, you know, surviving just fine. So there wasn't a need to do farming oysters. Farming oysters is actually fairly new in general when it comes to the Gulf Coast. So obviously West and East coasts have been doing it for quite some time. There were no commercial oyster farms until 2009. The first ones were established in Alabama and Louisiana. And then the industry grew slowly from there with Florida changing its regulations to allow oyster farms in 2015 and then Mississippi opening in 2019. So when it comes to the Gulf Coast, oyster farming in general is very, very new. I mean, think about it. 2009 for an industry in agriculture, I feel like that is so young. I think that now would be a good idea to ask you, do you like oysters? Do you eat oysters? No, I do not. But Luke loves seafood. He loves oysters. He loves mussels. He loves the whole shebang. So Guinevere's and Annalise's favorite food is oysters, raw oysters. And so I've actually, before this article, had done a little bit of research. And I'm actually not surprised about that on the Gulf Coast because supposedly the colder the water is, the better the oysters. So no offense to the Gulf Coast, but like you want them coming from like British Columbia. I think it's like Prince Edward Island is really good. And they're actually supposedly, because I got kind of nervous. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm feeding my small children like raw oysters. Is this safe? And Apparently, the colder the water, like the safer it is for longer periods of time. So it didn't it didn't surprise me that this was new. And it's also worth noting, you mentioned we're kind of fish out of water on the terminology. Maricultured means 
they are farmed oysters versus mm-hmm. wild. And supposedly one of the good things about the farm oysters is they are prettier or more uniform. So when it comes out on that pretty platter, like, you know, on the half shell, they look more like uniform. Whereas if they're wild, you're going to have ones that are bigger and smaller and, you know, just all in between. Yeah, so maybe we should give the difference. Oysters grown in mariculture operations rely on seed oysters produced in a hatchery, and they're typically grown in cages or nets as compared to harvested from a natural reef via dredge. Uh, Another thing about the mariculture is that they can be obviously occur year round because they don't, you know, depend on seasonal spawning like um, natural ones would. So there are, with anything, there are pros and cons to this, which going back to what you asked me about why Texas hadn't done it, you know, I said that largely because, you know, they didn't need to embrace it from a farming standpoint. But I also think that they were looking at, you know, weighing maybe the pros and cons. Yeah. And uh, hurricanes are really hard on wild oysters. So I think that played into it. Some really bad hurricanes had kind of wiped out the oyster population. So farming was like a way to be able to like incorporate a different type of oyster. I guess I went down the rabbit hole that I found interesting of the regulation of basically starting a new industry. And what I thought was interesting is that it passed really, really quickly. And so I thought there was an interesting juxtaposition between Texas held out so long to implement this. But then when they did bring it to the table, it like flew through and basically everyone across the board okayed it. The legislatures, the restaurant industry, there was the Coastal Conservation Association. They all gave it like two thumbs up. The bill was put into you know place in 2019. And then the Texas Park and Wildlife Authority then went set to develop the program. You have to apply. You have to fill out an application to become like an oyster farm. You cannot just like wake up and be like, I'm going to start, you know, farming oysters. Like there's an application process, a training process. Uh, they have initially approved two and that's what harvest is coming up. And now more will be coming. Um This part goes into that. It takes uh, one year for an oyster to grow one inch. So that's why like you may start in 2019 and you're not going to get your first harvest until like four years later because you want them about four inches long. And then I was um, surprised that I'm surprised there wasn't more pushback. I think I know why there wasn't more pushback is because they needed oysters, but from restaurants, because oysters are kind of like fine wine, like their taste reflects their growing conditions. So you want to make sure you have really high quality growing conditions. Otherwise, the oysters won't taste good. Obviously, restaurants won't buy them, all of those kind of repercussions. So like you said, I think there's a lot of like checks and balances going into this to make sure it is like environmentally like sound and that it actually is like a benefit to even the wild populations. Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to continue to follow. Like you said, there are three farms and operating in the state now. Five more have been issued conditional permits, and then there are a few other applications in the work. So it's still a very, very small industry. But um, as you mentioned, it is hard to pass. There are five state agencies that regulate it. But I do think it being a new industry that obviously the Texas oyster industry needs like they are it is in severe decline i had some percentages pulled out that i won't read but it needs the farming component mixed in so thinking about first generation people who want to be involved in agriculture i do think there's a really big opportunity so it'll be interesting to see how quickly this grows yeah and um just some like insider scoop i'm going to heb this week which is like texas big grocery store and i have bought raw oysters to bring home from heb before and i'm gonna go and do a little market research and see if they are selling texas oysters or not so i'll keep you guys posted it's Gwenevere's birthday this week she wants oysters so i'm gonna go buy some i'm gonna try to find texas ones and we will i'll let you know 
I'll never forget when we were in San Diego and we ordered oyster. Did we order oyster? Were those oysters? Yeah. Yeah. And she would not stop eating them. I was no. like, Guinevere, <laughs> calm down. <laughs> <laughs> she. We have a rule that she can only eat as many as she get A's on her report card because otherwise she would like eat us out of house and home. Like they're not cheap. Let's be honest. <laughs> it's a really good incentive to get A's. Yeah. I don't think that would work on my kids. <laughs> They'd be like, oh, okay, I'll be sure to really study hard for that. <laughs> All right, you guys, that's all we have this week. Thank you so much for listening to Discover Ag, where every week we discover what's new in the world of agriculture. We will see you guys next week. 